Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Alma 23 through 29. We're doing missionary work. We're going to get back the reports of who's doing what and where. The brothers come back. We read in this part of the text that there's like a 14-year mission that takes place, two sets of seven. We also read that, you know, they don't all have the same number of converts. This is the story of missionary work we often don't tell. And if we take the approach like we're supposed to and ask ourselves, okay, Mormon had all these sets of plates. He could have gone in so many different directions. Why does he tell this story? I think we should do that every single time. Why did Mormon choose this story? There must be something in our lives, in our society, in the Church of the Latter Days, that Mormon saw that we would need this story. So now we get the plight of the new convert. We get to walk into the church and see it from the perspective of the new convert, because they go through more than we often realize, and we need to be more sensitive to those who are coming in. Now, That's if we focus on missionary work, which I think we should. I think we should keep the focus on converts and missionaries and joining the church. But there's an application here to everything, and that is you need to see coming into any new culture. Even like my son's getting married. Congratulations, Spencer and Kenna. We love you. And I've just realized the challenge of coming into a new family. Spencer is now joining their family, and Kenna is now joining our family. Learning to see the plight of someone who's changing cultures is very, very fascinating that Mormon would choose to write this into the Book of Mormon. So we're going to look at this, because all of these new converts have to deal with the left-behinds. They have to deal with coming into a culture that has hated them in the past. This is the rebellious teenager who wreaked havoc in his ward growing up, and then he changes, he goes on a mission, and then he can't go back to that ward because all they see is the teenager who caused so much problem in his youth. They don't accept the new convert. And so we get to see these Lamanites come into the church, and the challenge of joining a culture that you at one time fought against. And what should that new culture do? And the beauty of these chapters is we're going to see four different perspectives. We're going to see the perspective of the convert dealing with the left behinds, dealing with the nervousness of joining a new culture. We're going to look at it from the perspective of the the left behinds, because man, do those Lamanites get angry when they are, quote, left behind. And we're also going to look at it from the perspective of the new church, the new ward members accepting the the new guys in, but we also get to see the joy of the missionary in all of this. So four wonderful perspectives are going to be woven in into this one storyline. One of the things I like about how you approach the text is you read a text and you say, okay, how is this like real life today? How is how is what I'm reading applicable to my life. And I just want to invite you, the listener, to always try to approach the scriptures and see ways that you can take a text and say, 
okay, how is this like my life? So for example, like think about what a challenge it would be to someone the first day they walked into your church building. I remember as a missionary, I looked at church totally different when I would bring an investigator. Do you remember that nervousness you felt, Bryce, when you would walk in and you're like, man, I hope people are nice to this person. And think about how many people go through that. We have so many people every year join the church and they're having this experience. And so Alma 23 through 29 are chapters that are so applicable every day. And there's people right now in every one of these four buckets. And so I'm going to cover these buckets again. So we've got the missionary bucket. What's it like for the missionary? The joy of missionary service, because they're going to be honest. Ammon's going to say, this was tough. This was the hardest thing we ever did. And we took it. We took it on the chin, but man, our joy is full. And that's such a beautiful perspective, is to understand the joy of the missionary. So missionary's one bucket. That's the first bucket. The next bucket is the convert, this person who's, it's awesome. You feel the spirit, you're so excited, but there's this nervousness. Am I going to be accepted? What's it going to be like in this new culture? Another bucket is, what about the family of the people that just joined the church? They probably have these feelings of, what has my son or daughter done? They might even have trepidation being around. The missionaries, I might look at them with an eye of skepticism, perhaps. I remember being a missionary one time and we had baptized this lady, and her family looked at us like we were just really bad guys. Now, it took time, but we eventually won them over. You know, we're not the enemy of your family, and we were to establish a friendship, but that tension is real, isn't it, Brian? Yeah. And dealing with past friendships with people who aren't changing as you're changing is a really awkward thing for people who are changing. And so we're going to see that whole dynamic, and I call them the left-behinds. I don't mean that to be a derogatory term, but these are the people who kind of feel left behind when they don't change, and their dad or their mom or their child or someone does. They they get baptized, and, I, and these are the people who don't. So that's another bucket, the left-behinds. And then the fourth is the members, the members of this ward. You know, how do they treat this convert? And to me, the answer is always going to be Jesus. It's always going to be use the things that Jesus teaches us on how to treat people. But we're going to see some good and some bad and some ugly in here, aren't we? And this is where the Nephites really do knock it out of the park. This is one of those portions of the Book of Mormon where I just absolutely am stunned at how they behaved in awe of their righteous behavior. And I just I love how the Nephites respond to me. It is one of the greatest lessons for welcoming people in. And so if you'll just kind of say, how does this apply for me? And it may not be missionary work. It may not be joining the church. Sometimes it's it's any type of a new culture. Those of you who served on a mission, the very first day you went into the MTC, you got the orange sticker. And do you remember how you were treated when you had an orange sticker? It's the same idea, right? You're the newcomer. And we often mock and tease and make fun of the newcomer without pausing and remembering, wait a minute, I was just in their shoes. What was it like to come into the MTC and be the new guy? And so all these are going to mesh together as we jump through this text. Let's jump in with 23, because 23 is kind of the who gets converted. And I love there's some wonderful things in this chapter. End of verse 6, as many as believed in their preachings and were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. Yeah, I like that. The convert has to be converted to Jesus, not to the programs of the church, not to the missionaries, not to friendliness. Notice, if you'll fast forward to chapter 26, when Ammon is kind of rejoicing, notice in verse 13, he points out that the Lamanites were brought to sing redeeming love, and this because of the power of his word. 
It wasn't their friendliness that did it. It was the power. Now, winning their hearts, like we talked about last time, will get them interested. They'll, 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 we can have the conversation. Winning their hearts allows us to have the discussion. But it's only when they are converted to the Lord that they are firmly planted and they don't fall away. And you can tell who's converted to the Lord in the next verse, verse 7. Now, I'm going to read from the Scriptures. and Don't look at the Scriptures for a second. Tell me what word you would put in this blank. Ready? And they became a righteous people, and they did lay down the weapons of blank. Wouldn't you expect it to say war, the weapons of war? But notice what it says in verse 7. They became a righteous people. They did lay down the weapons of their rebellion. And that's, I think, a significant thing to conversion is what has been keeping me from Jesus? What has been keeping me away from the Father and the Son and what they want me to do? And conversion is when you finally lay down that weapon of rebellion. It's when I stop doing the things I know Heavenly Father doesn't want me to do. And I give in. We talk in the church. Remember in the Old Testament, they offered animal sacrifices. And then when Jesus replaces that in Third Nephi, he says, I don't want any more animal sacrifices. What I want now is I want you to offer a broken heart. And that's what he means by a broken heart. I want you to break the things that keep you from God. I want you to break your heart in that you give God your allegiance and that you break the idea in your head that you're better off living your life your way by your rules. And you finally say, no, I'm not. I'm better off if I give myself to God. His way is better than my way. And I break that. And that's laying down of your weapons of your rebellion. When you finally say, I I conclude, Father, that my way is not better and that I'm in it, I'm, I'm going to do things thy way because I've come to the conclusion that thy way is better than my way. That's the laying down of that weapon of rebellion. Good. You know, it's interesting to me in the 23rd chapter that the groups that Mormon is drawing this, these distinctions and he's drawing these lines and he's basically saying there's seven groups, there's seven geographical areas where the Lamanites come to Jesus. And that number seven is going to pop up over and over again. Notice what they call themselves. It's such an interesting word. It says in verse 17 that they're going to call themselves the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Now, as an English reader, anti just means like against typically. But in this case, it does not mean against. And so I'm going to do some a little bit of etymology right here. And this is right out of the Book of Mormon onomasticon. That's, uh, we'll link this in the show notes. But that, that's a website where people that know languages are, are breaking this down and trying to figure out, okay, what do what some of these words mean? Where does this word come from? Where does it originate? And so anti could be a transliteration from Egyptian, which just means it is. In other words, that which is. Anti meaning that which is of Nephi and Lehi. So it could be a transliteration, and it could mean also facing Nephi and Lehi from the Hebrew word, which means facing or towards. 
It could also mean those who imitate the teachings of the descendants of Nephi and Lehi. So I like that as well. But essentially, these people are imitating Nephi and Lehi. But they're not quite Nephi and Lehi. They're not Nephites per se. But I like this idea, Bryce, that they're coming into the culture. They're coming in and being integrated into the group. And one of the things the Book of Mormon authors do over and over again is they say, as soon as they put down their weapons and they're friendly with us, and when they join us in our belief in this redeeming God, there is no restriction. The quote, the curse is removed. It, it, we're totally with, with them. And I think that's because, to me, this isn't about the typical things we think about, like skin color and those kind of things. What it's about is it's about... Um, our covenants, and it's about insider and outsider groups. And to these people, the inside group is, are you friendly to the Nephites? And then do you believe in God the way we do? And if you do, then you're with us, and you're a Nephite, and you're part of our culture. And so these people are going to be brought in. And it's really interesting because there's this whole text in here about they don't want to fight. They're, they're going to bury their weapons of war. There's this huge speech in the 24th chapter that the king gives where he says, hey, we've got to do something. We've got to change, and we've got to bury our weapons of war. And the speech starts in verse 7, and it basically goes to verse 17. And if you do a real careful reading of the speech, to me it's fascinating. What I think is happening here is they're coming out of a culture of violence. Notice what it says over and over again in verse 9. It says, we've got to get rid of our many murders. It says it again in the middle of verse 10, right? That we have the, we need to be forgiven of our many sins and our murders. And then he says, we're most lost in the middle of verse 11. And we need to repent of all of our sins and our many murders, which we have committed. And if you think about that, I, you know, I think what's happening here where they're talking about our many murders, I think that they're referring to human sacrifice. I think these guys come out of a culture where human sacrifice is a thing. And so they're saying, hey, we are going to bury our weapons of rebellion or our weapons of war, and we're going to take our swords, and we're going to bury them deep in the earth. And what I find fascinating in this speech is, and if you do a careful reading of this, seven times the king uses the phrase sword or swords, and seven times he uses the phrase stain or stains. The number seven is a multivalent word. It's multi-layered. It literally means seven, but it also means oath, or it also means covenant. And so what are these guys doing? They're making the covenant. And so this king, in the midst of this covenantal speech, is using the number seven. And so it's a literary device. It's a pun, but it's multivalent here. The reason why I'm drawing this out is because the number seven is really significant. The word seven is shiva, but... What's fascinating to me is the second character in Hebrew for seven, it's shin, bait. The second character is a bait. If you put a little dot in the middle of the bait, it's called a degesh, then it makes the B sound. But if the degesh is not in there, it makes the V sound. So you have shava or you have shava. And in a podcast, you'll probably be listening and say, Mike, I can't tell the difference when you say shava or shava. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the point. But um, Shiva means seven, but it also means covenant or oath. And so these guys are in the number seven, they're making this covenant. And I find that fascinating because we just got out of the narrative about the waters of Sebus, the well of the seven, the well of the oath. So just bear with me, but we're going to go out of the Book of Mormon just for a second and go into Genesis. This is 
to me, it's fascinating. There's a lot of punning happening in the Genesis narrative. In the 21st chapter of Genesis, Isaac is born. And we have this wonderful narrative of Isaac, and then it gets troubling with, we have some stuff happening with the other son, Ishmael, and and Hagar. But at the end of the 22nd chapter, there's this narrative shift. And so at the end of Genesis 21, starting in verse 22, we get this strife, this, this battle that happens between Abraham and a guy by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech is a mashup of a couple words, Ab and Melech, father and king. So Abimelech, father, king. There's this battle between him and, and Abimelech's guys, but they end up making a covenant. If you go to verse 27, it says that they both made a covenant. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for made that's translated in English, the word made, the word is karath, and that literally means to cut. So they cut a barith, they cut a covenant. And in the ancient Near East, that was a meal. The covenant was where you took the animal and you cut it. You cut the covenant and the meal was the covenant. And so the meal, and the meal isn't even in here. It's not even described, but that's what's going on. They would sit down, they would have a meal and they would be friends and we're not going to fight anymore. And what I like about this, I can't read karath barith. I can't read to cut a covenant and not see the sacrament. What is the sacrament? We sit down, we have a meal, and we say, we're going to be friends, and we're going to get along. But then notice what it says. They take seven lambs in verse 29, and they make it at the be'er, at the well. I have digged this well, and the well's called in verse 31, be'er shiva, the well of the seven, the well of the oath. And I can't read the well of the seven or the waters of the seven and not see the waters of Sebus. And so if you go back and read that narrative, Ammon kills seven guys at the waters of Sebus, the, the well of the seven, the well of the oath. And he brings Lamoni to the covenant. And then when the king and his father make the covenant, they bury their weapons of war. And they give this very distinct speech where they say, There's, our weapons are stained. And they say that phrase seven times. And they talk about their weapons seven times. And so in this speech, I read this and I'm like, this is so amazing. And then I come across this paper that's just outstanding. It's by Corbin Veliz. And I, Corbin, I apologize if I mispronounce your last name. And it's in BYU Studies. And it's called The Study in Seven, Hebrew Numerology in the Book of Mormon. And his take, and it's pretty fascinating, is that Alma's doing this all over the place. And so I'm finding this stuff in here about the speech. But then Corbin says, oh, we're just getting started. It's like a 20-page paper. So you can read it, but I'm just going to summarize some of the stuff that's in here. So here's a couple of things. The whole book of Alma has a sevenfold structure in it, according to Corbin. He says basically that we have seven sections. We have the Amlicite Rebellion. We have the Nephite Reformation in 4 through 16. We have the Missionary Journeys. We have the missionaries' Mission to the Zoramites. We have Alma's testimony to his sons as part of that sevenfold structure. We have the Zoramite War. And then we have what are called the Amalekite Wars. So it's a sevenfold structure. We have seven companions to the Zoramites. We have this speech we refer to with the stains and the swords. Um, there are seven tribes that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon in Jacob 1.13. And he just goes on and on and talks about this. And I find that fascinating to read and just say, there is more going on here. Now, to back it up and make it really simple, like, Mike, why are you talking about this? It, the number seven is a multivalent word. It's multi-layered. It literally means seven, but it also means oath, or it also means covenant. And so what are these guys doing? They're making the covenant. 
And so this king, in the midst of this covenantal speech, is using the number seven. And so it's a literary device. It's a pun, but it's multivalent here. And I love it because, once again, Joseph, 23 years old, producing this text. Here it is. It's pretty fascinating stuff. And then you get into this idea of swords. And if you're somebody who is living in the 1800s and you're, you're just making up a text about swords, I don't know if you would write a lot about swords being stained. I mean, the conception of a sword to Joseph would probably be a metal piece of material, and that's going to be really easy to not stain. You just wipe it off. But for, and this is where I think the Mesoamerican context really pops here. The, the Makana sword or the Makawitel or the, the Makawit, as a lot of people call it, is a sword that's wood. And it's, it's a long piece of material that's wood, and it has obsidian blades embedded in it. And when the Spanish came to Mesoamerica, they saw the power of the sword that could do great things. I mean, it could cut off the head of a horse. And so the Makawit, or the Makawitil, is a, is a sword that clearly could get stained because you've got this big wooden handle and this big wooden sword with obsidian blades in it, and blood gets in there, and it's not getting out. And so as I read this text of Alma 24... In verse 13, where the king says, I say unto you, let us retain our swords that they be not stained with the blood of our brethren. And over and over again, he says, we've got to bury them because they're stained and they bury them deep in the earth. I like that. And I see that in that context. Now, did it take place there? Certainly, I don't know. But the scholarship seems to point me in that direction. What I find fascinating here is the structure of how Alma 24 is put together with the speech, the waters of Sebus. I see a connection there for me personally. But I really like this, Bryce, because I see this as a radical change. It's this new convert. It's one of the buckets of these people, and what's their approach? And so I really like that, but not everybody has that approach. I remember one time we taught someone who was coming to the church, and they were baptized, but they still held on to the stuff of the old culture. And I do, Bryce. I have empathy for them, because I can see what a tough transition that is. In these chapters, I think Mormon is giving us all kinds of examples to see how to help them, how to help them have a space. And so now we get to that first bucket, and that is, how do you deal with the left behind? How are you going to deal with the people who, when you join the church, are angry at you, and they cut you off? My companion and I in Mexico baptized a 17-year-old who just turned 18. We, we, we met him when he was 17. He couldn't get baptized. His parents wouldn't give him permission, but we were in the, I was in that area long enough for him to turn 18, and he chose to get baptized. And we walked him home from his baptism just to make sure he'd be safe, and all of his possessions were out on the street, and he was never once welcomed back in that home. How do you deal with the left-behinds who get angry? Because these Lamanites are going to slaughter uh, over a thousand of these converts because they're just angry at them. And so I think Mormon's trying to say, the solution, may I suggest a solution if you'll hear it, is to hold on to the covenant that you're making. So these people bury their swords. Verse 21, when they saw the Lamanites were coming, they would not take the sword to defend themselves. And symbolically, I think Mormon's trying to say, don't go back to your old ways to please them. Don't go back to your old ways so that there's not this riff, and, and that's the temptation is when you come into the church, when you come into a new culture, and people are angry that you've come into that culture and left them behind, the temptation is to go back to your old ways as an attempt to please them and make sure they're not angry. But rather than picking up those swords that they buried, rather than, than going back, 
they just they lie there and they take it because they take it it tugs at the heartstrings of the people who were angry so i love verse 24 where it says when the lamanites saw this they did forbear from slaying them for there were many whose hearts were swollen in them for those of their brethren who had fallen under the sword for they repented of the things which they had done. It's hard to have a fight with someone who's not fighting back. Right. And I love in verse 25, it says they were stung. They were stung for what they had done. Now, big picture, I think what Mormon is trying to do is say, those of you who are coming into the church, those of you who are being baptized, coming out of a culture of maybe sin and transgression, and coming into a culture of Jesus and righteousness— be prepared that they're going to be angry. Some of the people left behind are going to be angry, and they're going to be mad at you, and they're going to dump all your possessions on the street and not let you into the house. That can be the reaction. And if Mormon can give you a suggestion, he's trying to say, hold on to that covenant. Hold on to the covenant that you've made with Christ. Don't go back to your old ways of violating the covenant to appease them, because you keeping your covenant may very well sting their heart. And that very well may be the reason they come to Jesus. Because verse 26, that day they were joined by more than they lost. Now, that's, that doesn't bring back the people that were killed, but the idea is holding on to your covenant and being willing to take the blows that they're giving you may very well be the means that stings their hearts and brings them in. More people will come in because you're holding on to your covenant. I think Mormon's seen this big picture-wise, isn't he? Tertullian said something about the idea that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, I think was his phrase. And there's some really cool firsthand accounts of people in Rome and people in, in the European Empire that would see Christians being killed, and they would say, what is this Christianity thing that somebody's willing to lay down their life? And so big picture, I'm with you, Bryce. It's not bringing back the dead people. I mean, clearly it's a very difficult text. These people are going to be homeless. What I find fascinating is what the Nephites do in response to that, right? Their, right. their homelessness actually is an invitation to act like Jesus. And that's our next bucket. Maybe we jump there just for the sake of continuity. So dealing with the left behinds and holding on to covenants and knowing that they're going to be angry, but hoping that me holding on to my covenant will sting your heart and maybe bring you into the same covenant. Now, can you imagine the nervousness of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's when they say, well, we can't stay here. We're going to get slaughtered if we stay here. We can't live among these other Lamanites who are trying to destroy us. We've got to go. But oh my goodness, are they nervous? They are nervous to join the Lamanites. And it's like, how they will hate us. And this is the young man who was rebellious in his teenage years, coming home from his mission, saying, maybe he's a little nervous to face his ward. How will they accept me? Because to, to them, I was a rebellious young man. They're not going to accept a changed person. And so these, these anti-Nephi-Lehi's are very nervous. They can't stay where they are living because the other Lamanites are killing them, but they're nervous to go join the Nephites. And so Ammon, who loves them, says, let me, let me go ask the Lord. Let me go talk to the Lord and see what he says. And so he prays about it, and the Lord says, get them up to the land of the Nephites. Verse 12 of chapter 27, get this people out of this land that they perish not. 
So he goes back and said, will you go dwell with the Nephites? And you can just sense the trepidation among these converts, these new converts. Oh, they'll hate us. They'll hate us. They'll never accept us. Well, let me go see. If I go in and talk to them, and so Ammon goes in, and he's going to talk to the Nephites. And this is where the Nephites just knock it out of the park. And again, this is where I want to shout from the rooftops and wave my arms and say, please hear this portion of the Book of Mormon. It is life-changing when you will pause and say, what must it be like to come into this new culture? And watch what they do. Now, I'm going to read it, but then I'm going to point out what's happening. So this is chapter 27, verse 22. It came to pass that the voice of the... So the chief judges sent out a proclamation, will you accept these anti-Nephi-Lehi's? And this is their response. 22, behold, we will give up the land of Jershon, which is on the east side by the sea, which joins the land of Bountiful, which is on the south of the land, Bountiful. And this land, Jershon, is the land which we will give unto our brethren for an inheritance. And behold, we will set our armies between the land Jershon and the land Nephi, that we may protect our brethren in the land Jershon. And this we will do for our brethren on account of their fear to take up arms against their brethren, lest they should commit sin. And this their great fear because of their sore repentance which they had on account of the many murders and awful wickednesses. And now behold, this we will do unto our brethren, that we may inherit the land Jershon, and we will guard them from their enemies with our armies on conditions that they will give us a portion of their substance that we may maintain our armies. Now, let me just see if you caught what I caught. Number one, we will make room for them. We will make room for them. That's such an important application. Yep. So if if Kenna is marrying Spencer and coming into this family, we will make room for Kenna. And those of you who've had someone join your family who's maybe a little different than your family with different culture and different traditions, make room. Number two, verse 23, we will set our armies that we may protect them. And then in verse 24, guard them. In other words, make it safe. And defend them. Make it safe. Make room for them and then make it safe in that place. Make it safe in your family. Make it safe in your ward. Make it safe in your quorum. Make it safe for them. Make them to feel safe in your presence. And then on numerous occasions, did you notice how many times they said, our brethren? That is significant. They considered them brethren. This is just phenomenal. I love these Nephites, and I just can't wait to meet them and shake their hands and and just say thank you for the example of how to accept people into your culture. Make room for them. Make them feel safe and consider them your brethren. To me, that's just so inspiring. I think sometimes, and it's not sometimes, it seems like this is all the time, we want to put people in categories. I mean, I even did it at the beginning of this podcast where we said, well, there's really four groups of people, but here, and I think this is a big macro message of the Book of Mormon, is once we find Jesus, we, we are all brethren. Now, there's another message. Even when they're not, when they haven't found Jesus, right? How many times do the missionaries say, these are brethren, these people that are murderers and they're out to get us? 
they're children of God. And so I think that's a really great message, right? And that's difficult because of the world that we live in, but that's the ultimate goal is to see them as our brethren. I also like how you talked about making it safe. In a family situation, when someone's brought into the family, and I think it was Stephen Covey who said this one time, he says, if you want to retain people that are present, then you need to honor people who are not present. And in families, of all things, we're going to have people that are different. Talking bad about somebody who's in your family does not create a, a climate of, of of family or safety. And so I think I love this here, right? They're making them safe, and they're calling them their brethren. And I love how you're applying this, Bryce. This is good stuff. And it's not just missionary work. It's everything. How about the new hire? What if everyone were to pause and say, wait, there's room for you here. You're welcome here, and you're safe here because we're brethren. Or that anytime someone comes into a new culture and we just have this Nephite attitude, make room for them, make it safe, consider them your brethren. This truth applies to so many areas of our lives. If you are the new culture that someone's coming into, would you remember this lesson from the Book of Mormon? If you're the family that someone's joining, if you're the church that someone's getting baptized and joining, if you're the ward that they're coming into— Would you remember this example from the Nephites? It is a phenomenal example. Make room for them, make it safe, and consider them your brethren. So when the anti-Nephi-Lehites find out that that was the response, can you just imagine the joy, the relief that came over them? Such a beautiful story. So they leave their old home, they get a new home, and now we have the land of Jershon, which is where the anti-Nephi-Lehites are going to dwell, and they're going to be protected, they're going to be safe, they're going to be considered brethren which then leads to Ammon's rejoicing. So if you go back a chapter to 26, in all of this, we get a little glimpse at the missionary. So we've looked at the convert. We looked at the convert struggle with their left behinds and how to hold on to the covenant. We've talked about the convert struggle coming into a new culture and how helpful it is when they are made safe and there's room for them and they're protected and considered brethren. Now let's pause and talk about the missionaries. Chapter 26 is every missionary's favorite chapter almost because it's the challenge and the joys of having served. And Ammon looks back, he looks at what's happening, and his joy is overflowing. And to the point where Aaron kind of says, verse 10, Ammon, I fear that thy joy does carry thee away into boasting. And Ammon says, I do not boast of my own strength nor my own wisdom, but behold, my joy is full. My heart is brim with joy, and I will rejoice in my God. I know that I am nothing, as to my strength I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God. For in his strength I can do all things. You can just feel the joy of missionary work, which, let's be honest, let's be very clear. Verse 27, when our hearts were depressed. So did Ammon get depressed? Did Aaron, Omner, and Himni, and Muloki, and Amma, did they get depressed? Yes. Were they at the point where they were about to turn back? Did they get homesick? Did they have moments where they wanted to return and go home? Verse 28, right in the middle, we have suffered every privation. Boy, missionary work is hard. I remember wearing a white shirt and a tie in Acapulco when it was about 120 degrees, maybe 122 degrees and 100% humidity. And we were just sweating like crazy and we were walking up and down the hills. And it was hard. 
And remember, after fasting, the only thing we wanted to break our fast with was liquid. So we had milk. That was our meal, just milk, because we needed liquids, but we wanted some substance. So we suffered every privation. End of verse 29, we have been cast out and mocked and spit upon and smote upon our cheeks. We've been stoned and taken and bound with strong cords and cast into prison. Remember that story that Elder Holland told about the missionaries that had the bologna sandwich thrown at them? This is the hard side of missionary work. We have suffered all manner of afflictions, and yet you get to look into the joy of their heart. Ammon's heart is brim. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of heaven works backwards. They went through all this tough stuff, but because they're on the other side of it, they're like, it was all heaven. They don't seem to be regretting it here. No. They don't seem to be dwelling on the pain and the anguish of their missionaries. I love when missionaries come home and they stand at that podium and you can just feel the joy that's running over. I love that Ammon says his heart was brim. His heart was brim with joy. I like when he says the field was ripe in verse 5. Because in Alma 17, 14, they talk about how they were wild and ferocious and bloodthirsty. But here he says, the field is ripe. And I just think it just depends on how you look at it. And obviously, he's on the other end of it. And so big picture, this is a lot about embracing maybe our gifts, right? It's parenthood. It's accepting a calling in the church. It's serving in a political position. It's serving human beings. And it is hard work. Parenthood is hard work, and yet there comes these moments where our hearts are brim with joy because of the fruit. And I think the point that Ammon's trying to make here is the fruit of having blessed human beings is well worth any of the cost. The joy of human beings. This is the, this is the couple at the end of their life as they look at their posterity and all their struggles, their financial struggles, their health challenges, all of their struggles fade into insignificance when their heart is brim with joy at their posterity. This is the joy of dealing with human beings and especially missionary work. I want to emphasize verse 22. He that repenteth and exerciseth faith bringeth forth good works, and prayeth continually without ceasing. Unto such it is given to know the mysteries of God. You get personal revelation. And unto such it is given to reveal things that have never been revealed. Yea, and it shall be given unto such to bring thousands of souls to repentance, even as it has been given unto us to bring our brethren unto repentance. Even today, if you're the Abinadi, if you happen to not be an Ammon or an Aaron, but happen to be an Abinadi, Didn't Abinadi bring thousands of people into the church? In one apple, there are a limited number of seeds. But in one seed, how many apples are there? And it doesn't matter if you're an Ammon missionary or an Abinadi missionary. Abinadi brought thousands and thousands of people into the church, even though he went home from his mission feeling that he had zero success that he didn't baptize a single soul. When Abinadi dies, he doesn't know he has a single convert. And so this is the joy of missionary work. This is the heart brim with joy because I have served other people. There's also this really cool verse, verse 37, 
which is kind of the mission statement of the Book of Mormon. Remember, if you remember our podcast at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, where we talked about the purpose of the Book of Mormon and Jesus is going to be manifest to every people. Look in verse 37. Now, my brethren, we see that God is mindful of every people, whatsoever land they may be in. Yea, he numbereth his people and his bowels of mercy over all the earth. I remember I was in a, in a third world country and I remember being in this car and I got out of this car and it was hot and I was in a place that was just the building. Some of them had been bombed out and I saw this boy and he was about 10 and he probably will never have the experience of a kid in America. And I looked at him and I thought, how does God see this boy? And from God's perspective, we're all his sons and daughters. And, and he loves this boy. And I, and I see this. To me, this is the golden thread in the Book of Mormon. This is the Book of Mormon trying to say, we are all brethren. There's also, I, I'm going to nerd out just for a minute on verse 36. This is what it says. If this is boasting even so will I boast. For this is my life and my light, my joy and my salvation, and my redemption from everlasting woe. Yea, blessed is the name of my God, who has been mindful of this people, who are a branch of the tree of Israel, and has been lost from its body in a strange land. That is reminiscent of Jacob's vision in Jacob 5. And what I find fascinating about this is that's on the small plates. First and second books of Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni. And if you remember our podcast where we talked about Book of Mormon overview, Joseph translates that at the end. I mean, if Joseph Smith was just writing this, this is a fascinating thing referencing something that he hasn't translated yet. Anyway, that's just one of my little nerdy moments about the Book of Mormon. But back to the text, these guys understand and see this as these are all part of the tree. These people are part of the branch. And so the people that we see that we interact with, even the people that are grumpy towards us or that are wild and ferocious, maybe we can take a piece of the Book of Mormon, verse 36 and 37, and just kind of let that sink in our hearts that God's mindful of every people. So really quick on the Amulonites. I really like this. There's a really cool timeline we're going to put in here. On the timeline of the Amulonites, just to recap, the people who are the Amulonites they start out as these wicked priests of King Noah, and that's in Mosiah 18. When the Lamanites invade the, the Nephite lands, the priests of King Noah peace out. They leave. And then later in the 20th chapter, they kidnap the daughters of the Lamanites because they've left their families. And so they're in this, in this weird limbo state where they don't have daughters, so they take the daughters of the Lamanites, which then causes a war. Later, in the 23rd chapter of Mosiah, the Amulonites are found by the Lamanites, and the daughters of the Lamanites plea for these men and say, don't kill them. And so they're not killed. But then you get to the 24th chapter, and these Amulonites gain some power. They get some political power. So these guys obviously have some kind of skill. And this is right around between 142 and 122 BC when all this happens. Well, then later in the 24th chapter of Alma, Alma and his people escape from the Lamanites to the land of Zarahemla. And then in around 89 BC in the 24th chapter of Alma. So now we've had some time pass, like 50 years, you know, that's a long time. The Amulonites take a major part in the death of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. These people have power, they have political influence in the Lamanite culture, and they start getting these converts of the Nephites killed. And all of this brings us to chapter 25. Let's point out, Mike, chapter 24, among those who joined the people of the Lord, there was not a single Amalekite or Amulonite. 
So none of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's came from the Amulonites. There's a weird verse in here, Bryce, I can't remember where it is, where Mormon says there was one There was God. one. He, he, he corrects it later and says there was one. Verse 14. Chapter 23, verse 14 says, none of them were converted, and then Mormon's like, well, save one dude. He doesn't tell us his name. Yeah, but, but you're right. These guys, are they're bad dudes, right? Is that fair to say? Yes, and, and even in that correction, the one dude was an Amalekite, not an Amulonite. Yeah, yeah. So none of the Amulonites ever joined the church. Yeah, so th- th- these guys are bad dudes. So that's kind of the intro to chapter 25, and I call this the big karma chapter. So what happens? kind of got to do a little bit of careful reading. So go to verse 4 of chapter 25. Among the Lamanites who were slain, almost all the seed of Amulon and his brethren who were the priests of Noah, and they were slain by the hands of the Nephites. And the remainder having fled into the east wilderness and having usurped power and authority over the Lamanites. So we're talking about the Amulonites. They caused many of the Lamanites should perish by fire because of their belief. For many of them, the Lamanites, that's who them is, after having suffered much loss and so much affliction, began to be stirred up in remembrance of the words which Aaron and his brethren had preached to them in their land. Skip down to verse 7. It came to pass that those rulers who were the remnant of the children of Amulon caused that they, the Lamanites, should be put to death, yea, all those, the Lamanites, that believed in these things, the message of the Book of Mormon, that Jesus is going to come down and die and be resurrected. Verse 8. Now this martyrdom caused that many of their brethren, more Lamanites, should be stirred up to anger, and there began to be a contention in the wilderness, and the Lamanites began to hunt the seed of Amulon and his brethren, and began to slay them, and they fled into the east wilderness. And behold, they, the Amulonites, are hunted at this day by the Lamanites. So quick recap. This is a big historical narrative that I think Mormons condensing. What I see happening is this. The Amulonites somehow, some way, are able to, after they're integrated into the Lamanite culture in the Mosiah narrative that we just kind of recapped, they get power, they get authority, and they incite all these rebellions. They're the ones that are inciting the Lamanites. They're stirring them up. They're like, yeah, let's go get them. It's kind of like if you remember when you were a teenager and you had the one friend that dared you to do something. And then you went and did it, and then your friend didn't do it, right? They're like, yeah, do it, and then you do it. And you're like, wait. At some point, the Lamanites are tired of war. They're tired of going against the Nephites, and the Amulonites are always stirring them on. Let's go, let's go, let's get them. And then at some point, when the Amulonites are saying, no, kill these Lamanites, these Lamanites that believe in Yahweh, kill them too. At some point, the Lamanites get tired of it, and they're like, wait, you're not my friend. You're a jerk. And so I see historically over a long period of time, the Amulonites are kind of a type for Noah. What happens in Noah's life that happens in a very condensed time package happens over time with the Amulonites where you think he's your friend and then you realize not not so much. This guy's not my friend. Blinders come off eventually. Yeah, but it's it's kind of missed in the Book of Mormon because it just it's spread out over time. And so what I'm doing with this timeline is I'm taking all the ingredients and I'm putting them here right here on the counter for you to see, no, it's the same thing. And I think there's a message here, don't you think, Bryce? Yeah, it is. And there's a great message. You see it again in the book of Ether. Do you remember when Omer was king and he has a son named Jared who wants to be king, wants to take his dad's throne? And in the end, Jared hires Achish to kill Omer. What happens? 
Achish kills Jared to take Jared's throne away from him and become the king. And I think the idea is, if you pick up that snake, don't be surprised if it ends up eating you. This is your, you know, you did this. You, if you partner with evil, don't be surprised if evil consumes you. Next week, we're going to talk about Korahor. Korahor will be Satan's puppet for a time. But as soon as he's no longer useful to Satan, he's trampled by the Zoramites, which are Satan's next puppet. So it's like Satan will, he will butter you up. He'll, he'll make you feel important as long as he can use you, but he can no longer use you. You're done. But he lies to you. The he whole lies time. to you. The he whole tells time. you, you know what? If you sign up with me, you'll be safe. I'll make it. And we're going to see this in the war chapters later. He's always telling them, Hey, I know these other guys got, they got totally burned. I'm not going to burn you because you're an exception. You're special. That's Satan. He will not support his own followers at the end. In the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Magician's Nephew, Diggory and Polly wake up Jadis, the Queen of Charn. And while she only has Diggory and Polly, she she totally ignores Polly and talks to Diggory. She uses Diggory. But then when Diggory pulls his uncle in, who's kind of that evil sorcerer that got them there, this happens, this beautiful little scene where C.S. Lewis writes, now that she was left alone with the children, she took no notice of either of them. And that was like her too. In Charn, she had taken no notice of Polly because Diggory was the one she wanted to make use of. Now that she had Uncle Andrew, she took no notice of Diggory. I expect most witches are like that. They are not interested in things or people unless they can use them. That's a great line. And so the idea is, if you're going to be on Satan's team, he'll use you. He'll promote you. He'll make you very important, but then he will end up destroying you by the very power you sought. It's fascinating. Just a, it's a beautiful little chapter right there in chapter 20. And we just kind of miss it. Yep. It's good stuff. Turn with me to chapter 29. Oh my goodness, do I thank the Lord constantly for Alma chapter 29. It is whoever wrote the Book of Mormon, and this is again my best evidence that it wasn't Joseph Smith, whoever wrote the Book of Mormon, whoever the author truly is, understands the human condition better than any psychiatrist or psychologist or doctor or anyone who deals with people. Whoever wrote the Book of Mormon knows what we struggle with. And Alma 29, to me, is one of the greatest gifts of the Book of Mormon. Now, let me take you back to the Old Testament. Let me take you back to President Benson's talk on pride. And new, younger generations don't remember President Benson, but those of you who are older, like I am, President Benson's message was delivered while I was in the mission field. His message on pride was one of the most phenomenal things I've ever heard. In that message, he said, pride is ugly. Pride says, if you succeed, I am a failure. And I have found that that is at the heart of the natural man. If you succeed, I am a failure. Now, turn with me, if you'd like to, turn with me to the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, you probably won't recognize that chapter, 1 Samuel, but you'll recognize 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David slays Goliath. David is not a member of the army. Saul has been leading the army, and Saul was a good leader. He was a pretty decent leader of the army. 
And then David comes along and kills Goliath. Chapter 18, they're going home from the victory. Verse 6, the women come out to sing and to meet them. And look what they're saying. Look what the women are saying. Verse 7, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And there it is, right? She's prettier than I am. He just got called to be the bishop and I didn't. He and I graduated at the same time and he's far more successful than I am. I only have one child, but she has seven. It's that instant comparison. Oh, look how many likes she has on Facebook, and I don't. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's the silly game of comparison that we play. And we all fall into it. We all do. We all do. No matter what you do, if whatever's important to you, if, if your landscaping is important to you, you're going to drive around and you're going to notice all the land, all the yards that are prettier than yours. If fitness and health is your cup of tea, then you're going to be, you're going to notice people who are stronger, in better shape, accomplishing more than you're accomplishing. You're going to see people who are more beautiful than you. You're going to see, I mean, look at the NBA. We're always talking about who's the greatest of all time and who can outdo. Can this team bat that team? Is this team from 20 years ago better than this current team? And we play this silly game of who's the best. Who can outdo whom? And so watch what Saul does. This is what I call Saul disease. Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. Notice what he did with the word but. He tore down his own accomplishments because someone outdid him. To me, they have ascribed unto David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. We tear ourselves down because someone else is doing something good. Someone else has more likes than I do. Someone's more popular. Someone's more successful. Someone's prettier. And so rather than rejoicing in that, we tear ourselves down. We say horribly mean things to ourselves because someone's successful. Or we want to blow up the whole system. Yeah. Like we want to tear the other person down. And that's what President Benson was talking about. Pride is ugly. Pride says, if you succeed, I am a failure. I have found it's very human nature to take this person's calling and then attack ourselves. Or professionally, when the other person gets the promotion and you think, well, why wasn't I even considered? Why wasn't I considered? It's just a natural tendency we, that we have. And we butt ourselves. Like Saul did, we butt ourselves. Because they're getting the promotion and I'm not, we butt ourselves and we tear ourselves down. It's that natural tendency to tear yourself down simply because something good is happening yeah. to someone else. And it's so silly. The irony in the flip side is, in the rest of the narrative, Saul... He does butt himself, but then he gets his weapons, and then he chases, like, I'm going to go kill David, right? That's verse 9. Saul eyed David from that day forward. So this is a natural tendency. First, we tear ourselves down, and then we want to tear down the person who's successful. We want to find fault with that person so that I don't have to tear myself down. So, oh, well, he's really successful, but he's got all these problems, 
And it's that natural tendency when someone's doing well and something's succeeding, first we tear ourselves down inwardly, and then we tear them down publicly in attempt to somehow feel better about ourselves. This constant one-upmanship is just so destructive, and you don't need to go far. <laughs> I don't even need to say it. I mean, it's just all around us. Yes. So now we get to the Book of Mormon's antidote. And hallelujah, God himself knew the human condition and put in the Book of Mormon some wonderful remedies. And if ever there was a chapter in the Book of Mormon, I wish we could just shout from the rooftops. It is Alma 29. He starts by saying, man, I wish I could shake the earth. And now let me set this up. If ever there's a Saul moment, do you remember we just talked about Alma? Alma Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni meet after Alma has come out of Ammoniah, and Ammon has come out of the Lamanite mission. So if ever there was a moment for someone to tear himself down, this is Alma's moment, right? Because he just went to Ammoniah and watched women and children burn. He just watched the wicked reject him. You could say he's coming out of a failed experience. Depends on how you look at it, but you could say Alma's coming out of a failed experience. And yet Ammon's coming out of a very successful experience. And they meet where Ammon has thousands of Lamanites. Do you see the potential here for Alma to butt himself? To say, well, how come my mission wasn't successful like his? How come God sent him down there and I went to Ammoniah? It's the potential to but And so he kind of catches himself saying, I wish I could declare repentance to every soul. And I wonder if there was any hint of Ammon's success in that. I, would, I wish I had the voice of an angel, and I, could, I, could, I wish I could shake the earth and, re, and cause everyone to repent. Verse 3, I, I do sin in my wish, for I ought to be content with the things that the Lord hath allotted unto me. And then he goes on, and then he just says to me what are words of gold. Verse 9. Here is the antidote to Saul disease. It starts when you say this, I know that which the Lord hath commanded me, or given me, or made of me, or done with me. I know that which the Lord hath given me, and I glory in it. The moment you rejoice in what God has done in your life, the moment you begin to say, thank you, Lord. And I've met a lot of people who, as I teach this, say, well, I can't, th- I can't glory in myself because that's pride. And that's wrong. Read the rest of verse 9. I do not glory in myself, but I glory in that which the Lord hath commanded me. I glory in the abilities that God hath given me. No, they are not the abilities they gave Mike. I can't do what Mike does. I don't think like Mike thinks. I can't do those same things. And so why do I tear myself? Why should I tear myself down? Because Mike has 10,000 and I have a 1,000. I know what the Lord has done in my life. I know the talents he's given me, the abilities. I know the body he's given me. I know the course of my life that he gave me. 
I know that which the Lord hath done and given and commanded and said. I know what the Lord has done in my life, and I glory in it. I don't glory in myself. This isn't pride. But I am grateful that God loved me to the point that he did these things to me. That's step one. When you finally say, I'm grateful for the body he gave me. I'm grateful for the challenges that I face because they've made me who I am. The Lord will say the very similar thing to Emma in section 25. He'll say, murmur not because of the things which have been withheld, which are wisdom in me. In other words, if he gave someone else a different body than he gave you, or if he gave someone else a different talent or an ability, or someone was raised in a different environment, he says, murmur not because they got that life and you got yours, because it was wisdom in God that he did that. That's step number one. I know that which the Lord hath commanded me, and I glory in it. Now, when you do that, when you do step number, verse number nine, verse number 14 becomes natural. Notice what Alma says about the success of his brethren. He doesn't butt himself. He doesn't tear himself down. Their success doesn't cause him to feel like a failure or less. Just because they have more hits than he does, just because they're bringing back thousands of Lamanite converts and Alma just watched his converts burn in a fire. Just because he makes more money than you. Notice verse 14. I do not joy in my success alone, but my joy is more full because of the success of my brethren. When you accept what God has given you and give God the credit for doing it, it's so much easier that your joy is more full because other people are successful. I can rejoice in that person's success because I'm grateful. What are you saying when you butt yourself to God? What are you saying about God's decisions in your life and what he did to you when you butt yourself? This is such an antidote for human nature. If we would just be grateful for what God has done. I love this quotation from Patricia Holland. Now, everyone knows Jeff Holland, right? Everyone knows the dynamic, bubbly Jeff Holland. But very few people, really, you only know Pat Holland if you went to BYU and went to the devotionals where she spoke. No one else really knows Pat Holland because she never really does speak. But man, She is phenomenal. And here's a wonderful quotation from her. She says, Our Father in heaven needs us as we are, as we are growing to become. He has intentionally made us different from one another so that even with our imperfections, we can fulfill his purposes. My greatest misery comes when I feel I have to fit what others are doing or what I think others expect of me. I am most happy when I am comfortable being me and trying to do what my Father in heaven and I expect me to be. Then this beautiful insight. For many years, I tried to measure the oft-times quiet, reflexive, thoughtful Pat Holland against the robust, bubbly, talkative, and energetic Jeff Holland and others with like qualities. 
I have learned through several fatiguing failures that you can't have joy in being bubbly if you are not a bubbly person. Can you imagine the struggle she's had in comparing herself to her husband, her husband's bubbliness? She says, it is a contradiction in terms. I have given up seeing myself as flawed, as a flawed person, because my energy level is lower than Jeff's, and I don't talk as much as he does, nor as fast. Now notice this, giving this up, giving the silly game up of Saul disease has freed me to embrace and rejoice in my own manner and personality and the measure of my creation. Ironically, that has allowed me to admire and enjoy Jeff's qualities even more. Oh, if we would have that moment where we embrace who we are and are no longer threatened by who we aren't, we can then find joy in who they are and their talents and their gifts. I love that in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is always saying, that is her story and not yours. No one is told any story but their own. Such a good line. We need not worry about what God is doing in someone else's life. Trust that he's in that life, but trust that he's in mine and that he's doing in my life what he needs to do. It's not just Saul, is it? In the Bible, there's so many examples. You've got Joseph's brothers that are so upset. You've even got some of this stuff at the end of John, right, where Peter says, well, how come John doesn't have to go through this experience? And you let me worry about John. And- yeah, if I will, that he tarry till I come. What is that to thee? Yeah. You follow me. It's a simple way of saying... Peter, no one has told any story but their own. Don't worry what I'm doing in his life. You just rejoice in what I'm doing in your life. Bryce, I don't know if you remember this conversation we had, but it was probably about 10 years ago, and we were talking about spiritual gifts, and everything you just said reminds me of this. So I'm just going to go off on a little dirt road for a second. In section 46, it talks about, in the Doctrine and Covenants, talks about all these really cool spiritual gifts. And we're told in verse 8 to seek the best gifts. And I remember one time you pointed this out to me. Look at verse 10. Verily I say unto you, I would that you should always remember and retain in your minds what those gifts are that they are given to the church. In essence, and, and Paul talks about this, right? Should the foot brag to the finger? To the, should the eye brag to the ear? Hey, at least I can see. And should the ear say, well, hey, you can't hear? And the idea is that every part is needful. But the message the Lord's saying in verse 10 is, I gave them to the church and their gifts. And so I love how you draw this out. You're, you're talking about this human tendency and we should seek the gifts. And it's okay to say, you know what, I have a gift in this area, but it really is a gift. It's not something that necessarily is something I'm producing, but these are gifts. Now, we can take them and we can exercise them and we can stretch them and make them greater. But at the end of the day, the purpose is to glorify the church. And I think the places we see this most are in families, when we're little kids, right, the siblings can have rivalry, but even as adults, sometimes there's the t- this tendency to kind of pit ourselves against them. I love how you're saying that this is authored by God. This is God begging us, guys, just get along. And when we diss ourselves, when we do that to ourselves, what are we saying to God? And that's just a really important message. I've read Alma 29, and I've never read it this way. The way I've always read it is, 
Oh, that I were an angel. And then he says, but I sin in my wish. And then I find this really cool verse in here where he says this, I ought to be content with the things that the Lord has allotted me. But then in verse four, he says, I ought not to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God, for I know that he granteth unto men according to their desire, whether it be unto death or life. Yeah, I know he allotteth unto men. He decreeth unto them decrees which are unalterable according to their wills. In other words, Okay, I'm sitting in my wish, but I really do wish I were an angel. What is an angel? It's a messenger. Alma is an angel. His word, like he got his wish. So in the midst of him saying, oh, I'm kind of sinning. But then he throws verse four out there. And that's kind of how always been my reading. Is like in, in my life, Alma speaks with the trump of God. Yes. Alma's words are as if a trump of God is speaking to me. So he did get his yeah, wish. That's always been my reading of the text. And then you just break out. This is God talking to the core of who I am. And the whole time you were talking, I was convicting myself. I was like, yep, I do that. Yep, I do that. And I'm like, check, 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 fail, fail. And I thought, okay, I don't want to butt myself. And so to you, the listener, I hope this has resonated with you because I think this is so powerful. This is our human condition. And so I want you to picture your heavenly father looking at you right now saying, don't do this to yourself. And then if you see somebody do something awesome, don't tear them down, either in your heart or verbally. There's no, there's no need. It's just like, what are we doing? The gifts are for the church, and the toe shouldn't rip on the eye. And the nose, I'm glad I have a nose, right? And it's not my eye. Anyway, so this is so good, Bryce. Wow, Bryce. Uh, awesome. Whew, Alma 29. I love how he says in verse 16, when I think of the success of my brethren, it like just carries away my soul. It just it, it makes me so happy. My joy is full, verse 14. That's not human nature. Human nature is when I see the success of my brethren, I want to nitpick and tear down all the things they didn't do, the things they didn't say, the things they, where they failed, because their success threatens me, and he's going to butt himself. And that's what I love. If we just catch this vision and say, wait a minute, this is a silly game where no one wins. Don't do that. The game where everyone wins is where everyone is grateful to God for what they receive, the story he's telling them of them. Then I can look at other people and I can, I can, I can glory in it. I can say, wow, that's a fascinating story. He must be telling them about their life. So good. And so. isn't that Godhood when we finally embrace who everyone is and we rejoice in it? I really love that reading. I think we're going to end here. We are going to uh, start next week with reading Alma 30 through 31. So just two short chapters. I'm so grateful for you, the listener, to be part of this experience. If anything that we've said has resonated with you, we encourage you to share it. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to do this podcast and just talk about such awesome things in the Book of Mormon. I want to end also with my testimony that as I read the Book of Mormon, there's power in it. I feel a desire to be a better person, a better husband, a better father. And for me, even doing this podcast has really helped me to see it differently. And it's really helped me to just want to be better. And I think that's one of the ways we know we're feeling the spirit. If you walk away from something and you're like, man, I want to be better. That's a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. And with that, we'll see you next week. Goodbye, everyone. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.